Hello and welcome to SETI Seminars, brought to you by the Oakley Literature Festival. This podcast series will introduce you to a wide range of topics as leading experts break down years of study into bite-sized talks. From 18th century murder mysteries to modern US history, and from psychiatry to post-colonial literature. In 1859, Charles Darwin published his book on the origin of species by means of natural selection. Darwin used the analogy of stock breeding and artificial selection to explain his theory. But how did he think the analogy worked? Greg Raddick is Professor of History and Philosophy of Science at the University of Leeds. Here he shares a new study into one of science's most famous analogies. Hello, welcome to this Oakley Literature Festival SETI seminar. My name is Greg Raddick. I'm professor of history and philosophy of science at the University of Leeds. And I want to talk a little today about one of the most famous scientific books of all time, Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species by Means of Natural Selection, which was published in November 1859 when Darwin was, believe it or not, in Ilkley, near the end of a nine-week pamper holiday that he treated himself to after he'd finished dealing with the proofs on the book and felt that he'd earned some time off at a spa, which is what Oakley was at that time. Now, it's well known that Darwin named his theory natural selection in order to call attention to an analogy with stock breeding, or as it was known, artificial selection. But how exactly did he think the analogy worked? And why did he set such store by it? In our day, after all, analogies in science don't seem all that serious, right? We think of the UK's deputy chief medical officer, Jonathan Van Tan, livening up press briefings about coronavirus by bringing in analogies with football matches, train rides, and yogurt. Well, in a new book coming out this summer, my Leeds colleagues, Roger White and John Hodge and I, hope to have thrown some light on these questions. And I'll try in what follows at least to give you a feel for what we have to say and why we think it's worth saying. So let's start with the origin. This is the book that ultimately convinced the scientific community worldwide that life on Earth, in all its diversity over the whole of its history, is the result of what we call evolution, but what Darwin at that time called transmutation. The view that species of plants and animals are not immutable, unchanging, fixed for their times on Earth by a designing creator God, but subject to a process of gradual change, in which over very long periods, existing species slowly morph into new, modified, descendant species, resulting in a genealogical pattern that Darwin likens to an ever-branching tree, the family tree of life. So at the limit, according to Darwin, All species, past, present, and future, are genealogically related, thanks to an ongoing process of what Darwin calls descent with modification. And he goes on, by far the most important means of descent with modification, this gradual morphing, is what he calls natural selection. And he explains the term near the start of the third chapter of the origin. Now, by that point in the book, he's built up his argument in three steps. And we're going to see it's a four-step argument, ultimately. 
And the argument starts not in nature, as you might expect from the book's reputation, but on the farm. So first step, Darwin says, when we look at domesticated plants and animals, we find a truly amazing amount of variation. When dogs or cattle or tumbler pigeons or snapdragons or whatever is existing under conditions of domestication and they have offspring, those offspring are all interestingly different from each other. With some of that variation being inheritable, that is passed on to their offspring. Furthermore, and here we come to the, the second step in the argument, human breeders take advantage of all of that inheritable variation through what was called selection, choosing only those individuals who come closest to whatever ideal the breeder has in mind for breeding the next generation in hopes that the offspring of that superior breeding pair will themselves inherit the superior variations and pass those on to their offspring. And the whole process can then be repeated and repeated and repeated generation after generation, with each iteration bringing the average dog or cow or pigeon or snapdragon or whatever it might be that little bit closer to the ideal that the breeder has in mind. So that eventually the breed, the variety, will have changed so much that it counts as a new variety. And in Darwin's Britain, selection by breeders had been refined into a very powerful instrument. He quotes one expert as calling selection the magician's wand, by means of which he may summon into life whatever form and mold he pleases. Just think of all the named varieties, breeds of dog that you'll see when you're out for a walk on Oakley Moor or wherever. Such amazing diversity, yet all bred into being by humans from wild dogs that all trace back to a single wild progenitor canine species. That's what Darwin's talking about. And indeed, dog breeds are very much a Victorian invention. So to review, step one of the argument, there's a lot of inheritable variation on farms. Step two of the argument, breeders take advantage of that inheritable variation to breed into being new varieties by selection. Now, it's at this point we leave chapter one of the book, that Darwin leaves the farm behind and takes the reader into nature. So what do we find in nature when it comes to variation? Here we come to step three. Darwin shows that in nature too, individual animals and plants vary, with some of that variation being inheritable. Probably Darwin thinks there isn't as much variation in nature as there is on the farm, but there's enough to be interesting. So, Inheritable variation, we find it on the farm, we find it in nature. What about selection? Do we find it in nature too? And of course, Darwin's answer is a resounding yes. Yes, in nature too, there is a selective process. And as on the farm, the plants and animals uh, which are subjected to this process, the lineages that they belong to become modified over time. But whereas on the farm, selection only ever produces new varieties within existing species, in nature, selection can and does go further, producing not merely new varieties within existing species, but new species altogether, species transmutation, evolution. Now, on the farm, of course, the cause of selection is the breeder, eager to breed into being a faster racehorse, a beefier cow, a more obedient dog, or whatever. An expert 
at scrutinizing offspring in order to identify the individuals who, however slightly, vary in the direction useful to the breeder, given the breeder's aim, given the ideal in view. So what in nature is the counterpart to the breeder? What in nature causes selection, but with effects potentially so much more powerful than what human breeders can achieve on the farm? According to Darwin, it's what he calls the struggle for existence, or sometimes the struggle for life. And Darwin says, in nature, far too many offspring are born than the environment can support. Too many mouths, not enough food. Add in all the other challenges nature throws at organisms, predators, diseases, and we can see that survival is going to be a knife's edge struggle, the most intense one we can possibly imagine. So, which individual organisms will, on average, come out the other side from that struggle? It will, Darwin says, be those individuals which, by happy accident, were born with some kind of competitive edge, however small, born to be able to run that little bit faster, born to grow that little bit taller and to be able to nibble at leaves out of reach from the others, born to become that little bit more clever, and so to avoid situations that prove lethal to the others. These superior competitors, Darwin says, superior not in some global sense, but in being that bit better adapted, better fitted to their conditions of life, will, on average, go on to be the ones who live long enough to reproduce. And at least some of the time, their offspring will inherit those same variations that made their parents superior competitors. What's more, among the offspring, there will be individuals who, by happy accident, are born with even more extreme versions of the competitive making variations. And on average, they will go on to outcompete the rest and to become the parents to the next generation. And the whole bootstrapping process will repeat and repeat generation after generation. So that with each iteration, the lineage overall becomes ever more closely adapted to the local conditions. And thus, argues Darwin, has the world come to be so packed with so many such diverse and such amazingly well-adapted species. It is the work of this struggle-driven selection process, which he tells us at the start of chapter three of The Origin, he has called natural selection in order to flag up the analogy he sees with the breeder-driven selection process on the farm, so-called artful selection or artificial selection. And at this point, I think it would be good to hear from Darwin himself. I'm going to read from page 61, the 1859 edition. Here's Darwin. Owing to this struggle for life, any variation, however slight and from whatever cause proceeding, if it be in any degree profitable to an individual of any species, in its infinitely complex relations to other organic beings and to external nature, will tend to the preservation of that individual and will generally be inherited by its offspring. The offspring also will thus have a better chance of surviving, for of the many individuals of any species which are periodically born, but a small number can survive. I have called this principle, by which each slight variation, if useful, is preserved, by the term of natural selection, in order to mark its relation to man's power of selection. We have seen that man by selection can certainly produce great results and can adapt organic beings to his own uses 
through the accumulation of slight but useful variations given to him by the hand of nature. But natural selection, as we shall hereafter see, is a power incessantly ready for action and is as immeasurably superior to man's feeble efforts as the works of nature are to those of art. Now, Darwin will go on from there in the next chapter to develop this complex analogy at length. This analogy between, on the one side, the farm, the breeder's selective art, and new varieties, and on the other side, nature, the struggle for existence, and new species. And he devotes so much time and energy to it because it forms a hugely important brick in the wall of the book's overall argument. And Darwin famously says the book amounts to one long argument. It's by this analogy that Darwin establishes, or thinks he establishes, that natural selection is the same kind of process as artificial selection, capable of accumulating adaptive variation and so gradually modifying lineages, but different in degree, since the struggle for existence is vastly more powerful than human breeders are, with effects that are accordingly more far-reaching, resulting not merely in new varieties, but new species. Now let's take a moment and appreciate what an astonishing thing Darwin is here attempting to convince the reader of. Right? By this point in the origin, the reader who's been following along will be convinced that there is inheritable variation on farms, that there is breeder-driven selection on farms resulting in new domesticated varieties, that there is inheritance of variation in nature, and that there is struggle-driven selection in nature resulting in new natural varieties. And all of that is based more or less closely on what anyone so minded could go and observe for themselves. And although it's interesting and illuminating, there's nothing for the 1859 reader especially challenging in all of that. By contrast, what Darwin's trying to do now to argue that struggle-driven selection in nature is capable of producing new species is seriously challenging. Because the standard view, which Darwin accepted when he was a young man and which his great mentor, the geologist Sir Charles Lyell, believed fervently, was that God created species as standalone, specially designed, miraculous one-offs. What's more, in the sphere where we witness selection in action most directly, on the farm, it's never come close to producing new species, only new varieties. Right? Cocker Spaniels and German Shepherds and Greyhounds and St. Bernards are all remarkably different from each other, but they're all still dogs. So why should we believe that a similar process in nature could nevertheless be so much more powerful, capable of doing what hitherto it seemed that only God could do? That's the kind of skeptical doubt that Darwin tries to answer with his extended reasoning around the analogy between artificial selection and natural selection. And they amount, in the words of the title of our new book, to an argument by analogy, because Darwin tries to convince the reader that by reasoning through the analogy between artificial selection and natural selection, the reader will become convinced of the truth of something we can never observe for ourselves, never witness, namely that new species can come into being naturally by a struggle-driven selection. So a lot is riding 
on Darwin's arguments by analogy, from artificial selection to natural selection. And yet, on the whole, from Darwin's day right through to our own, a lot of people, even among the convinced Darwinians, have regarded the arguments as not very impressive and even faintly embarrassing in its hand-wavy weakness. And indeed, it's easy enough to find examples of arguments by analogy that go dramatically wrong. Here's one. Consider that Mars is like the Earth. The Earth is a sphere, and so is Mars. The Earth orbits the Sun, and so does Mars. So, as the Earth has people on it, by analogy, Mars probably has people on it too, right? Well, no. And we see here an instance of the general truth that analogies hold only up to the point where they don't. And there's no way of knowing just by reasoning where the divide lies between the similarities making two things alike and the dissimilarities making them different, the disanalogies, as we sometimes say. And among historians and philosophers of science, the reputation of arguments by analogy is indeed so dismal that over recent years, some have even tried to suggest that whatever Darwin's argument may look like, it can't, in its essence, be an argument by analogy, but must really be an argument of some other sort. And the thinking here seems to be roughly like this. Darwin is a classy reasoner, one of the classiest we've ever had. Arguments by analogy are unclassy. Therefore, Darwin's argument for natural selection's power to produce new species, a very important argument. It can't be an argument by analogy. Right? And in fairness to these critics, Darwin does go on at length about the dissimilarities, the disanalogies between what breeders do and what nature does. Right? According to Darwin, breeders choose selfishly when they select. They choose for human good, for human desires, human needs. Nature, by contrast, chooses for the good of the animals and the plants. Humans, in their selective actions, work with very limited knowledge of the species that we're working with. By contrast, nature is omniscient. Nature knows all. Humans operate with very limited time. Nature, by contrast, has eons in which to work. Well, suffice it to say, John and Roger and I see the situation differently from the critics. And the main aim of our book is to show that Darwin's argument belongs to a once familiar, but since largely forgotten tradition of analogical argument, extending back to antiquity. And that once we recognize his argument as belonging to that tradition, we can not only follow Darwin's reasoning better, but appreciate it as amounting to a good and even a brilliant argument. And what's distinctive about this tradition in brief is that what's compared, what's analogized, are not two things known to be alike in X ways and so arguably alike in X plus one ways, right? Think of my Mars-Earth example, but relationships. So suppose I ask the question, two is to four as 10 is to what? Now it's so easy uh, that the answer, 20, is one that you no doubt arrived at without really thinking about it. But if you were to think about it, you'd notice that after you'd figured out that the relationship 
of two to four is a doubling, you transfer that understanding to the relationship of 10 to the mystery number, concluding correctly that it must be 20, since 10 doubled is 20. Your analogical reasoning here doesn't turn on similarities between, say, 4 and 20, but on the same proportional relationship holding, whether the starting point is a small number, like 2, or a bigger number, like 10. So that's an instance of analogy as proportion in mathematics. What about in the physical world, the world of causes and effects? Well, consider, for example, a little river, which, when it floods, washes away a little bridge on the river. Now consider the question, if this little river in flood can wash away this little bridge, then what could a bigger river in flood do? A reasonable answer would be wash out a proportionally bigger bridge, on the view that to a first approximation, more powerful causes have greater effects. A big river in flood is more powerful than a little river in flood, and the effects of the flooding big river will be proportionally greater, bigger bridges being swept away. Now notice here, in an argument by analogy as proportion, the differences between the causes analogized matter just as much as the similarities, because where the similarities help us see that the causes are the same in kind, the differences help us see that in terms of their power, they are different in degree. The big flooded river is the same kind of cause as the little flooded river, but more powerful and capable of proportionally greater effects. Now, these are very humble examples of arguments by analogy as proportion, but I hope they give you a sense for what these arguments are and also how when Darwin's argument from artificial selection to natural selection is viewed through the prism of the tradition of arguments by analogy as proportion, the argument becomes newly intelligible. We can see what Darwin was up to and why he expanded so much time and energy in developing the analogy, including the so-called disanalogies. Right? Darwin emphasized the disanalogies between the farm and nature, between artificial selection and natural selection, not in order to sabotage his own argument, but to strengthen it by explaining why it is that though artificial selection is the same in kind as natural selection, it never comes close to producing new species, as befits a cause of lesser power. Now, in the new book that John and Roger and I have coming out, the reader will find this analysis developed much more fully. And we'll also find, among other things, is a survey of analogy as proportion arguments from antiquity through to Darwin's day, a close study of how and why Darwin, while working out his theory of natural selection in the late 1830s, developed his analogical argument and the role it went on to play in the origin, a rebuttal of recent revisionists who, as I've indicated, have tried to cast the argument as other than analogical, and also some reflections on how Darwin's argument, seen in this new light, can help us think afresh about how the origin fits into the wider culture of Darwin's times and also into ours. So that's my SETI seminar introduction to our new book. It's called Darwin's Argument by Analogy from Artificial to Natural Selection. It will be published by Cambridge University Press this summer. And on behalf of John and Roger and myself, 
We hope that you'll check it out. Thanks very much for listening. Thank you for joining this SETI seminar. We hope you've enjoyed listening. If you would like to learn more about this and other topics in the series, then reading lists are available in the episode description of your podcast app. Or you can check out our website, which is ilkleylitfest.org.uk. Until next time, don't forget to like, rate and subscribe.